everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sustain, the podcast where we talk about all sorts of things like where did we come from and where are we going and why am I trying to be like Richard? Because I'm not Richard. Richard's amazing. He'll be joining us shortly, but currently we have two panelists, Justin Dorfman. Hey, everyone. And myself, Eric Berry. And today we have a very special guest, Dan Lawrence from Google. He is a senior software engineer at Google. He is the lead for their open source security team. He's also been working in the cloud space for about eight years and is focused primarily on open source tools related to building containers easily and securely. He founded projects like Minikube, Scaffold, Tecton CD, and SigStore. And Dan regularly blogs about supply chain security and serves on the TAC for the OpenSSF. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk Absolutely. about sustaining open source. That's right. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to the point where we're chatting today. Sure. I've been at Google for eight, almost nine years now, working in the cloud and developer tool space almost the entire time since before it was called cloud. It's just a tiny little product called App Engine. I was doing developer tools there, trying to make it easy for developers to get their apps up and running when this whole container thing started to happen. So I, I jumped on that pretty early. I started the Minikube project, and that's how I got into this whole open source Golang Kubernetes world. And it's been awesome to watch take off over the last five or six years. Somewhere through there, I started to get worried about open source security, the quality of dependencies, things getting abandoned, unpatched vulnerabilities, kept worrying more and more about that, and then ended up here because other people started to worry about it too. <laughs> so take a step back real quick. You started by building Minikube. Did you do that while you were with Google? Yeah, so that was all at Google. I think that was the first Go code I ever wrote was some of those first commits into Minikube. So this project's really taken off. Yeah. Just to jump in real quick, I've been doing a bunch of YouTube videos on Kubernetes and like that's pretty much the go-to for all like examples. It's pretty awesome. I'm like, I know who made that. Yeah. I mean, I haven't worked on it myself like in years. I don't think I've contributed uh, in probably four or five years, but it's awesome to watch, you know, that there is still an active community and people took it over and they're still maintaining it and using it and getting value out of it every day. I'm fairly new in the container space, new-ish, like three years, I guess. So for me, I'm a Ruby developer for the most part, and I've been doing Rails development for probably 15 years now. And I've noticed a shift, a mental shift that's going on where things are starting to move away from local development and into containers so much so that that's pretty much all I do now is uh, develop with Docker. How does Docker fit into what you're doing over there. Can you compare Minikube and like your work with what the Docker team is trying to drive? Sure. Yeah. So I noticed you said you're not doing local development anymore. Does that mean you're running Docker in the cloud somewhere or are you like running Docker on your machine still just not running the stuff? Thank like you for clarifying that. So on all of my projects, we have a Docker file and a Docker compose and all I need to do is a Docker up. So it's all wrapped inside of Docker, the yeah. Docker for Mac. But yeah. I no longer need to go through all of the stages of preparing my environment. Like I can just have multiple environments running at the exact same time. And as long as there's no port conflicts, I can keep all that going. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because there is sort of a shift with like the GitHub code spaces and stuff now where you can do all of your development, you know, on some other machine far away in the cloud and everything. But yeah, I think Docker is a good first step either way that you're going there. Docker and Docker for Mac in particular have made this kind of development trivial where you don't even notice it's not local. You don't even really notice it's not on your machine. 
you just get to see the awesome parts of like the same app you run locally is going to deploy and build and run the same exact way when it does get to production. Um, so you don't have to think about any of those differences anymore. Docker's been, you know, one of the de facto development environments that got into the container space. Yeah, like six, seven, eight years ago now. So can you compare Kubernetes to Docker and tell me how those two relate? Sure. Yeah. From a development perspective, I think most people just kind of stick with Docker where you're developing one container, one microservice at a time. When you deploy something up into production, that's where you want to get into the Kubernetes area. And that's where a lot of people are using it. You know, Kubernetes is kind of taking over the private cloud, people setting up their own infrastructure sense from pretty much every enterprise that I've talked to for a while. So if you're working on just kind of one microservice, one application at a time, then you can usually get away with Docker or simple Docker Compose. The people that are starting to grab Kubernetes, grab one of the like Minikube distributions or a ton of the other local Kubernetes clusters. Like even Docker for Mac has one baked in if you click somewhere in settings and click turn on. That's if you're really trying to test more complicated infrastructure setups where you've got different services all talking to each other and you want to make sure it's the same as it's going to be when you get into a production environment. I try to stick to Docker wherever I can, and unless I have something pretty hairy that's got a whole bunch of services talking to each other. So you've been doing this for, what, you said five years in container land? At least. I'm not even sure anymore. It's been a while. <laughs> so do you consider yourself a masochist? <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy this area. You know, tar files and JSON and you know, it's the package managers of the future. <laughs> I see that. But so there's this path of adoption where adoption initially, I think there's those people who are somewhat masochistic. And I say that jokingly, but anytime you get into Docker, you've got like a super slow iteration process of getting it right. At least that's what I've seen. And I think for a lot of people, including myself, that was just something I never wanted to deal with. And so I'd always go to the easy path. Do you feel or do you see a shift of adoption like how I've started to adopt that, at least in your sphere of what you're seeing? It's kind of a trade-off, I would say. So yeah, Ruby was one of the awesome languages that had really awesome fast reload, hot starts, hot swapping of code. You could hit save and you know your browser would refresh. There was a bunch of awesome tooling there. The JavaScript community, the Java community had that as well. What you trade off there for is you know, kind of fidelity. The environment you have locally might not match the one in production completely. And depending on how good your tools were, you might hit some error in prod because a different version of some native dependency that you couldn't reproduce locally. So you get the fast debug loop, but then you know, you're kind of hoping every time you hit deploy. So containers came from the other end of the spectrum of like, all right, we're going to take the exact same thing we run in prod. We're going to run that locally. No more bugs, no more issues, no more differences between the environment. And what we're starting to see, though, is that you can have both. You can get the kind of fast swapping, hot reloads locally. And there are a bunch of tools now that do that. You can get the, if you set up your Docker file right, you can get your Ruby code or your Python code. Quickly mirror it in there. You don't get the long rebuilds every single time you hit save. You can kind of get the best of both, I would say now. In your opinion, do you think that local development with Docker is actually devalued a little bit if you don't use the same Docker configuration for your production deploy? What I see a lot of people do is end up mirroring their configurations. And I even have it in some of my projects where you've got a Docker Compose and a whole bunch of Kubernetes YAMLs. And you have to remember to update them both every time you make a change to one. So yeah, I think you do lose some of those benefits there. Compose stuff is easier to get up and running because you don't need a whole cluster and everything. It's a different YAML structure. You know, all the keys are named slightly different. You've got to expose ports slightly differently and you've got to remember to change both of them. So I think that's why a lot of people, you know, there's tools to convert between the two, Compose with a K. There's a bunch of different versions and stuff like that where you can kind of stop having to mirror the configurations and have a chance to introduce issues like this. 
Richard, welcome back to the show. Richard, I had some technical issues as, you know, at the beginning of the show, so I just wanted to let everybody know Richard's back. So welcome back, Richard. Good to be here. Hello, Dan. One of the questions I have immediately is, I'm seeing this framework that we're doing a lot more, which is building massive tooling sets to help us run our open source dependencies. So Docker is one of those. But now we have this problem where, you know, if Docker fails, what goes on? And so, and you're also building an entire ecosystem of extra tooling around, which can also break. And so I guess one of the questions for you, I have long-term, I know that you think that Docker is really helpful, otherwise you wouldn't put all this time into it. But long-term, do you think we're just going to continually keep making better Docker's, better Kubernetes? Or at some point, are we going to decide that tooling is enough? Or do you have a way of answering that question in a better way than I can phrase it? Does that make sense? <laughs> Well, one of the shifts that happened over the last, I guess, six or seven years, um, man, I'm trying to go back and figure out when all this started, is that uh, you know Docker and Kubernetes and all these different orchestrators learned to speak a whole bunch of common protocols and standards and specifications. Originally, yeah. Docker containers were this, not really proprietary, but you know because it was all open source, but it was just a format Docker made up that you know, this is how layers get set up, this is how configuration is done. They published that. A bunch of other vendors came along and re-implemented it so they could have their own versions of Docker Hub where they would have their own containers stored you know, in their clouds for faster retrieval and all of this stuff. That's not great because then every time Docker makes a change, it breaks all these other people. So eventually you kind of factor these things out into specifications that get owned and governed neutrally so everybody can implement them. So the Docker you see today is actually built up on a whole bunch of like open standards that aren't even part of Docker anymore. From the time you do a Docker push, to the time something hits your cluster, you might not even touch any Docker processes anymore. You know, there's different runtimes that know how to work with those images and pull them and fetch them and start them and orchestrate them and monitor them. So because of these standards, you know, standards moving up the stack and getting interoperability across even operating systems now, you can run you know, Windows containers that look like Docker images. You kind of move past that single point of failure and single tool chain that's actually used to manage everything. That is nice. And I like it. On the surface, one of the things I'm curious about is open standards, right? Open right. standards, there's a whole other world there. And this is like part of the evolution of tech, right? Yeah. Where things start out as, uh, let's make this work. And then, hey, this is how I'm doing it. Okay, I'll do that too. But you say, you know, who's in charge of those standards? So who's currently running the open standards that Docker is depending on? Is it Google? Mm -hmm. No, so there's a couple different standards, I'd say. The image formats and, you know, the registry protocols and APIs, that's managed by the Open Container Initiative. I think that's what it stands for, OCI. It's a group that's got a bunch of people on there. They, you know, debate over changes and vote on releasing new versions of specifications and that kind of thing. And, you know, by nature, once you get to open standards and open specifications, things move slow. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion for any of these changes. Which is good and bad, right? It's good because, you know, there are probably 45 or 50 different people implementing a bunch of these specifications. So changes need to be thought through carefully and not done, you know, every day to just add a new feature somebody thought through. On the other hand, this stuff all started with like, you know, just a single vendor coming up with some ideas they had and putting it out there and innovating and getting adoption that way. So it's kind of just the natural life cycle where these standards slow things down, get interoperability, get adoption, people can build stuff on them because they're stable and not changing. And then the innovation kind of moves up the stack to something more interesting than how you layer tarballs and JSON files together. So I'm looking at the OCI, so opencontainers.org. Looks like it's a Linux Foundation project, which is pretty unsurprising. Some of the members are Huawei, Oracle, IBM, Facebook, Cisco, AWS, very small names in the business world. One of my <laughs> questions is that we, when we have these really large companies who are running these open standards and they do slow down and they do have to make sure that things don't break and make sure the internet continues to work. 
if IBM went down tomorrow, I'm sure I would notice somehow somewhere in my stack, right? Something in my phone would be like, ah. How do you think that the shift towards open standards in particular with Docker, which is I think where your expertise is, influences open source developers who are in more smaller companies, in SMEs, in medium-sized companies, or solo developers out there who may not have the time to get involved in open standards? By the time something gets to the standards phase, it's usually because it's been proven out you know, by a bunch of small, really early adopters that don't care if it's standardized. They don't care if something changes completely the next day. They're happy to experiment and play with you know, the newest tech. So they kind of help contribute to the, the standardization process by proving stuff out, by getting to try all the new exciting stuff. Some other examples, you know, some of the more exciting, I guess, not exciting, but some of the more faster paced standard stuff going on now is like in the WASM community, where they're standardizing different WASM system interfaces. Wasm is WebAssembly. Not familiar with it, and they're you know they're building a whole new set of standards now for the way WebAssembly modules can interact with operating systems called WASI, and that's based on a whole bunch of prototyping and implementation and compile their work to people have kind of hacked together to prove stuff out. Um, and now it's getting everybody to agree on you know, what should we name these function calls and how many parameters should this thing have. And once that gets agreed upon, everybody can start to build on and use that stuff to kind of. People that aren't at the forefront aren't comfortable with their compiler breaking every three days as they're running on nightly builds and everything. So it's slowing things down in one area, which is can be demotivating, can be sad, but it means you know the excitement and the innovation is just moving somewhere else. I like that. You obviously have your own thoughts on what's going on with Docker and where you want to go. I'm curious, what are you really excited about in terms of Docker, either with standardization or just in the future in general that'll lead to a more sustainable ecosystem? So the standardization space is, uh, especially in containers, there's a couple different sets of standards, right? I mentioned there's the way images are formatted and stored. There's also ways they get run on machines. And they're kind of separate for a bunch of different reasons. And Kubernetes defines a bunch of standards on top of that for how they talk to each other and how you can build storage drivers and network plugins and everything. One of the areas that I've been most focused on recently is the supply chain security area, which we talked about. And so there are a couple different changes that are kind of being proposed and discussed in the OCI for how to kind of attach SBOMs and provenance and signatures and all of this other information to containers. The way containers work is a bunch of hashes and SHA-256s and Merkle trees and everything. So once you've got one and then you want to calculate some signatures for it or provenance or software bill of materials or something, you can't really attach that without changing the digest of the first thing. It's this kind of complicated property of the immutability. So it causes a whole bunch of trouble in bookkeeping and headaches people have to go through to copy around all of these other files as they move containers and download them and you know, create new versions of them. So there are a couple different changes going on in the OCI now to make that easier to do as people in the rest of the industry starts to care about supply chain security as well. So that's something I'm pretty excited about. I love your blog. You know, it's easy to read. The images on Splash are always on point and funny. The diagrams, super simple. In a recent post called In Defense of Package Managers, it's a great article covering the history and potential future of package managers. So I guess my first question is, you say package managers should become boring. What do you mean by that? Can you go a little more into that? Yeah, so this post, it's pretty long. And I... We started talking about but it it's great. with Ruby. It's great. Um, but don't yeah, let I think him. a lot of people don't see the distinction between something like gem install and what happens when you do like apt-get install because they look the same. You type in a package name and it gets installed by you know, this tool you're doing. But they're doing two completely different jobs. And then the packages that they're grabbing are also coming from completely different places with completely different guarantees and promises around maintenance and security fixes. 
and everything. And so a lot of people aren't paying careful attention and don't know exactly what happens or where the code they're installing comes from. Don't see the distinction there and get confused and you know get upset when they install a bunch of gems with semver tildes and greater than or equal sign things and it you know breaks on them every single week. Where something like Debian you know doesn't break because the packages never change. Well, those are kind of two different sets of trade-offs that are made. Where Debian they just the bullseye release actually just went on a couple of days ago, uh, which is awesome. Debian does these long-term stability releases where. You can grab that um, and then trust that it's not going to break on you for the next N years or N, I think it's somewhere between three and five, depending on if it's long-term support and stuff like this, which is an awesome property, right? You can install your packages, test them, and then nothing's going to break on you for three plus years. I mean, you can't do that with language package managers like Ruby and Python and Go and JavaScript. Um, and it's not a problem from the package managers, which people tend to think and complain about. Problem because there's nobody maintaining these, which is really a topic for sustainability. When you grab something from Ruby Gems, you have no idea if it's abandoned. You have no idea if it's you know one person that publishes it in their spare time and lost the password to the account. Where with Debian, um, when you install something like say OpenSSL, you're not installing OpenSSL from the OpenSSL maintainers directly. Right, you're not grabbing it from their GitHub repo like you might be with a Go module or an npm package. You're actually grabbing a copy of that that the Debian maintainers have made and promised to support with backports and fixes that they need to make for those next N years. So it's a huge hurdle to get something into Debian because they're promising to maintain it for the rest of time, even if you happen to disappear or stop caring about it. And so I was trying to tease apart some of those differences and then the implications they have on security and sustainability and the broader questions of just who is responsible for fixing this code. Thank you. That was a great explanation. And how can package managers help pay maintainers to support their libraries? You know, I was looking at Babel on depths.dev. I believe that's a Google project. I noticed their open collective was missing under links, which is a way to pay maintainers. Besides that, what are some other ways that package managers can help pay maintainers? Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, an open collective link to make it easy for people to contribute would be huge. But not every pack, it, it's a problem that not every package wants solved, right? If you're maintaining something, uh, you might not want money for that. Some people just put code out there and you know have a day job and can't take money in the evenings for their work. Sometimes a package just gets abandoned and there is no one to pay and you've got to find some new team to come in and maintain this package. I think some of the, you know, a wish list that I would have for package managers, and a lot of them have started to do this, is just kind of share some of the data around which packages get downloaded, how often they're updated, where they come from, so people can actually see some of the critical ones in there. JavaScript in particular starts to get really long and hairy dependency chains where you install one package, which pulls in a ton of other ones. It's really great for some reasons. You know, they get a bad rap for millions of packages getting installed for one line of code, but it means people are publishing really fine-grained packages, right? If you need one function, you can usually find a package that just has them, as opposed to other languages where if you just need one function, you're pulling in thousands of files because you know that's just the level of granularity these package managers tend to encourage. That means it can get hard and you can lose track of which things are actually dependent on by millions of people and millions of installations. The left pad example is a classic instance there where nobody even knew they were depending on a one-line function on NPM until it got renamed or deleted or something like that and broke everyone's builds. So I'm just trying to surface the, you know, the XKCD with one person in Nebraska, you know, thanklessly maintaining, yeah, the world's infrastructure, Nebraska person, kind of surfacing whatever data the package managers have because they are in a pretty privileged position there to see who's installing what in what order, how frequently. 
but making it easier to identify those Nebraska people and those Nebraska packages that are hidden at the bottom of the stack, holding up all of our digital infrastructure. Yeah, it's funny because Jory from OpenJS Foundation, what's her last name, Richard? Jory Burton. Yes. She says at the OpenJS Foundation, their mission is to help that person in Nebraska. <laughs> you know, So that comic is just so eye-opening and just so, so true. I just want to say, since we bring it up all the time, though, like Nebraska gets a bad rap. You know, I feel like we're always like, like, what's the problem with Kansas? It's like a whole thing, you know, in American literature. And like Nebraska is a fine state. It's got some beautiful, (laughs) wonderful features. It's got over a thousand developers on GitHub who identify (laughs) as being from Nebraska. I know people in Nebraska, Georg Link, who runs the Chaos Podcast, you know, like. Actually, oh, yeah, Georg does. So, just, I'm just saying, let's go wait, easy wait, wait, on wait, the Nebraskans. Wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to a different place. I never even thought about that. I, In fact, I think that comic has brought a lot of great attention to Nebraska and possible tourist revenue once this whole pandemic's over. So, let's have a conference where we go and, you know, figure yes. out how to support these people. We'll do it somewhere in Nebraska. It'll be the Nebraska. next Sustainable Assess event. It will be in Nebraska. Perfect. Mark my words. <laughs> I like it. I have an interesting question, and I'm still trying to Google what is the motto. Equality before the law is the motto of Nebraska. And what more could we ask of our maintainers down the dependency stack than that they get equality before the law and before source something? One of the questions I have is that we often talk about paying maintainers, especially here on this podcast, you know, because money is one of the ways in which capitalism works and it's the way I get food on my table. It's very important to me. But most of open source actually doesn't work just by money. It works by building an ecosystem. It works by cloud. It works by having a reputation. You get to have a better job through having run an open source thing. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on getting other ways of recognition to maintainers down the stack than just using remunerative efforts. Yeah, paying maintainers is really hard. It's something I've learned over the last year or so trying to do it. You know, the logistics of paying people all around the world are not easy. A lot of people don't want money too. You know, a lot of people are happy doing this in their spare time and, you know, think bringing money into the picture will turn it into a job. I understand that too, right? I do woodworking. I would never want to sell any of my stuff because it's terrible, first of all. And, you know, I don't want it to be a job, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's tough and, you know, money always makes things complicated. So there are tons of other ways. I love some of the stuff GitHub has been doing recently. I always see on Twitter all these different little plaques and pieces of art that they send people showing, you know, their contribution history over the last year. And people got little badges for their code that made it into the Arctic vault they set up. So all the world's code would be protected in some apocalypse. You know, little tiny ways of just recognizing people, sending them t-shirts, swag, that kind of thing uh, can often go a a huge way on top of uh, just figuring out how to support people full-time. One of the coolest things that I've seen uh, GitHub do recently actually is on August 19th, they pushed out enhanced support citations for GitHub. So it's much easier now to cite a repo if you're an academic, right? Academics normally don't make money off their work. They make money off of teaching. They make money off of tenure deals. It's, it's a bit of a different industry than, say, corporate life. And citations is really the currency of academia. And so being able to cite easier is, is fantastic. And I really like that. Hopefully, eventually, this will go all the way down the stack. That would be really fun. Arfon Smith, I think, is one of the people behind this. Arfon's an awesome sustainer. I'm not sure if we've had him on the podcast, but really cool work. And I just, I'm really glad to be able to highlight that today. Dan, can you tell us a bit about what Sigstore is doing? Yeah, SigStore is an open source project that's got a couple you know, different sub-projects inside of it designed to make it 
easy for people to sign and verify where their code is coming from. So we tried to copy a lot of the Let's Encrypt playbook where you know they identified that most web traffic was insecure, even though we had technology to get certificates and buy them and install them on our web servers. Nobody was doing it because it was expensive and complicated and slow. So they fixed it by setting up open source public benefit corporation that made certificates free and easy to get and published all these tools to automate that process. So we've seen something similar in source code and supply chain security, where we have code signing systems. You know, you have to go and buy a very expensive certificate in order to publish a driver that can be loaded by Windows. You have to do the same for publishing things in you know, the Apple App Store and uh, the Play Store on Android. Uh, but nobody's doing it for open source. Uh, you know, nobody's signing their code on PyPy or RubyGems, even though you can, because nobody wants to go buy one of these $500 certificates and take a photocopy of their driver's license and mail it to some address and hope to get a certificate in your email back that you can start using. So we tried to copy a lot of that and set up a, a free certificate authority for open source and a whole bunch of tooling to automatically get those certificates and make it easy to sign the code that you're publishing. Whether it's a Docker container, or Python package, RubyGems, uh, Rust packages, that kind of thing. What's your adoption look like so far? It's been pretty good, especially for containers. A lot of companies are setting this up internally. They found that the same problems taking code from open source also happen in big companies. When things hit prod, you don't know which developer pushed them. We're seeing a bunch of open source projects uh, start to sign their containers and publish signatures so people can check them when they start to pull them down. That can help out a lot with things like typo squatting or dependency confusion attacks where these people set up Instead of MySQL on Docker Hub, they'd get MSYQL or something like that, even more nasty with Unicode characters wherever they can squeeze them in. So if you copy paste the wrong thing or fat finger your keyboard like I do all the time, you might end up getting a container that just mines Bitcoins or steals your SSH keys or something like that rather than the real one you were trying to get. So we keep seeing these attacks happen more and more often. This project and projects that do try to publish this metadata can help protect their users against that. So one of the things I'm always struck by when talking to you, although it's only the second time I've done so, is that it seems like you're a watchman out there on the walls looking for bad things that might happen, right? You're trying to make sure that the dependency chains don't break down, that the trucks keep getting to the grocery stores, so that everyone's able to like have omelets in the morning without thinking about where the eggs came from. And that's kind of a weird metaphor. I don't know why I went there, but you know, you, you know where I'm going with this. And so one of the things I'm curious about is, do you think... It's a good idea to have the ecosystem depend upon what I imagine the few brilliant people like you doing this work. Is there like a larger community of people working on security supply chain issues? I mean, who are your colleagues, who are your compatriots, who are the people you bounce these ideas off of? And how do we eliminate the bus factor here? Oh, I think there's quite a few people doing a lot more out there than I am. But we're just trying to, you know, sign code here in Sigstore. There's a bunch of people in the community helping out there and we've got a whole bunch of support. But I think some of the other people kind of doing security research um, and publishing vulnerabilities and actually trying to attack some of these package managers and get bugs fixed are doing an awesome job on top of this because they're showing how easy a lot of this is, getting issues fixed and just raising awareness. And there's one person, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's R-Y-O-T-A-K. We can find him on Twitter later. Um, yeah, it's one person who's put together a string of just different attacks on package managers for things like PyPy and RubyGems and even VS Code on GitHub. Hub. Thankfully, this is a security researcher publishing these things for bug bounties rather than doing much, much worse things with the data that they've gotten access to. One of the things I really like about, I think it's Ryota. It looks Japanese to me because they say they're in Japan. 
and they're definitely writing in Japanese on their Twitter. <laughs> I love that that's another language. I love that we have a global <laughs> attempt here to figure out like how can we make things better? How can we make it all work? together do you all have a slack you hang out on is there a twitter thing is there a mastodon instance what what, what goes on <laughs> we have a slack for sig store uh, there's a bunch of different you know, communities working on this stuff um, sweet yeah there are people that are constantly watching ruby gems we talked about that earlier for bad packages getting uploaded and trying to build tools to scan new ones as they come in so we don't have to wait uh, for somebody to go look for them later doing all these complicated algorithms to look for those typo squatting packages that try to piggyback off of other names or look for ones that in the pre-setup hook install Bitcoin miners on your laptop, constantly reporting those and getting them taken down. PyPy has been getting hammered with this too lately, which is a real problem for sustainability because these package managers are not maintained by huge corporations, a lot of them. They're you know tiny open source foundations with maybe one or two people on staff keeping them up that everybody is relying on. Some of the numbers I've seen from my colleagues, Dustin Ingram, he works at Google, but he's also on the Python Foundation Board of Directors. And he tweets some of the Python stats for how much bandwidth actually gets used by PyPy. And it's just absolutely massive and mind-blowing. And if they didn't have a CDN giving them free credits, you know, this would be millions and millions of dollars a year just given away as a charity. I think PyPy is part of the PSF, which yeah. is a pretty small foundation. I mean, we've yeah. had Eva Delowska on this podcast yeah. a few times. They do excellent work. And it is interesting to see how much of the world's digital infrastructure depends upon, you know, one person in <laughs> Chicago, Illinois, not Nebraska, but still. <laughs> one of the questions I have sort of related to these small foundations that run things or these individual people, I mean, both Ryotake and Dustin Ingram have only a few thousand followers each, right? 3,000, 2,000. These are not the Kim Kardashians of the coding community. <laughs> and it's interesting to me to see, like, again, how do we maintain these people? How do we make sure that the watchers stay on the walls and write these really cool things? What do you see as the long-term growth of the software industry towards security in general? And how will that change over the next, you know, five, 10 years, especially as we're seeing more federal involvement, you know, there's starting to be policy papers coming out of the EU about security stuff. I'm just curious what your perspective is on how your role and the role of people like you will change. Yeah, something that we've been constantly reminding, you know, the policymakers wherever we can is that like 80 to 90% of software in use today is open source, right? You know, anybody building an application is, you know, maybe adding 10 or 20% on top of the open source that they're building on. And so any of the policy requirements for software build materials or you know, new testing scanners and fuzzing and all of that stuff that's applied to software is also going to hit and impact open source. And even if companies you know, can do this work for the software that they produce, if we don't think of and don't take care of and don't remember that these same requirements are going to hit open source at the very bottom of the stack, we're kind of placing unfunded mandates and burdens on these repositories and maintainers that they didn't sign up for. They don't have huge lucrative government contracts that they're trying to meet. They're just trying to put code on GitHub. Um, so we're really trying to remind everybody that as we increase these security standards, which we should and we need to do, because software is serious and people's lives depend on it, uh, we have to make sure that we're getting resources into the hands of the people that need it, whether it's free credits or services, or, you know, whatever people need to do their job the right way, or if it's money, then we can do that too. Love that answer. Dan, it has been a pleasure. We have a couple things, a few final questions before we wrap up. <laughs> One of them is... Where is your blog? I know I think Justin mentioned it. Where can people follow you on the internet to learn more about the insightful things that you are saying? Sure. It's on Medium, D-L-O-R-E-N-C dot medium.com. Uh, that's where most of my stuff goes. That's the easiest way. 
Awesome. And do you have a Twitter account, Instagram, whatever? Yeah, Twitter, L-O-R-E-N-C underscore Dan. Sweet. We will have those in the show notes and all the other links that we mentioned here today. So thank you so much to our amazing editors. And editors, keep that in. I want people to know that you actually do this amazing work. So thank you, Paul and Deanne, for that. Before we close up for today, we have my favorite part of the show, Spotlight. Spotlight is where we shed light on projects, people, open source things, or if you're one of the hosts of this podcast, whatever you like, for things that just need love and need to have some light shed on them. So Eric Berry, the man with the somewhat James Bond villain-esque dog in your arms right now, what is your spotlight today? So my spotlight today is a game that I've found is incredibly fun and it's a very passive game. It's somewhere between an idle game and an active clicky game. It's called Incremancer, I-N-C-R-E-M-A-N-C-E-R dot G-T-I dot N-Z. That's where you go. It's just this game that the developer, his name is James Gittins, G-I-T-I-N-S. And he's a pretty cool developer. He has a bunch of little games and he's just some developer out of somewhere. And, and he open sourced the games. He didn't open source them, but he, he made the code available, source available. However, you can't get in and see like how the cheese is made there because he's hiding a little bit. But anyway, I'm rambling. It's a great game. Check it out. Incremancer. Just Google it. Thank you so much. Excellent. Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? Visual Studio Live Share, edit and debug with others in real time. I was on a call with one of my colleagues and I was like, hey, let's just hop on a Zoom. I want to show you something in VS Code. He's like, dude. I'm like, what? And he's like, install this. I was like, oh. So yeah, Visual Studio Live Share stuff in VS Code. It's pretty dope. Thank you so much. My spotlight today is the BibTech community. Arfon Smith did amazing work pushing out this GitHub addition where you can actually cite code. But one of the cool things about that is that it has a BibTech plugin. Like you can just cite code with the BibTech and just download it and add it to your BibTech files. If you use LaTeX at all to make your PDFs, it is the number one thing probably used in academia for making nice PDFs. BibTech is so essential. And it's one of the things I actually credit to me being a developer at all. Around a mile from where I'm currently sitting in Edinburgh, Scotland, I spent probably a week making my own BibTeX file to match what I thought was the standard for my department instead of writing the essay I was supposed to be doing. And that week laid the foundation for all sorts of bike shedding, which has led me here. I can't say enough about how awesome BibTeX is for just citing stuff. So thank you to the BibTeX community. There are people who have built that, and I'm just so grateful for them. Dan. Last, but certainly not least, what is your spotlight today? I put the Debian maintainers. I've been doing a bunch of work to update to Debian Bullseye since it came out, I think, last week, uh, a little over 10 days now. And uh, yeah, it's something that people do not think about enough and don't realize exactly how much work goes into forking and maintaining and backporting and patching all the packages that end up in there. It's something that you just... Upgrade once, probably complain about during the process, and then forget about for the next three years until you complain again when you have to update all of your scripts. So I want to say thank you to them for keeping all of our software up to date and secure. Deb, yeah, you will. That was a horrible joke. I apologize. Dan, thank you so much. You are the proverbial corn husker. That's right. Nebraska is the corn husking state. 
husk is a really interesting word in the English language because a husked corn means a corn with a husk and a corn where the husk has been removed. And what is the husk? But a package around something else. And as the king of the package managers, you are clearly someone who deserves the title of corn husker. So when anyone is using a package manager, I hope they think of you and I hope they think of like how to make security pipelines better. Keep up the good work. It was a pleasure talking to you. Sorry for that weird linguistic addendum. Thank you again. Thank you.